find ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew, and I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me this morning. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew, as you will recall, emphasizes the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of which we have just sung. And this morning we find ourselves in verses 1 through 14. Follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man with a withered hand. And they questioned him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In order that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man shall there be among you who shall have one sheep, And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out. And counseled together against him as to show how they might destroy him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. My heart is always filled with joy when I'm able to stand before you and speak to you the glorious truths of the gospel of Christ. And that's the way it should be. All of our hearts should be filled with joy when we come to worship the Lord. And yet there are times when... My duty brings us to a place, especially when we have a text like this before us, where I must draw out some very sobering truths for you. This is one of those days. Before we look at the text itself, may I preface my remarks by simply saying that there has always been within the realm of religion a metastasizing corruption which eats away at the spiritual fabric of the church. And usually it's within false churches. Sometimes it's even within the true church. It is a cancer known as legalism. Essentially, legalism is the adherence to man-made standards of external spirituality. Rules 
not found in Scripture, all the do's and don'ts that people come up with. And typically, a legalistic person abides according to those rules that he or someone else has contrived, but certainly judges other people who do not obey them. And, of course, the ultimate motive, although denied by the powers of self-deception, which are inherent in hypocrisy, the ultimate motive of legalism is self-exaltation, impressing God or thinking that you're impressing God as well as impressing others. Legalism is at the heart of hypocrisy. Legalistic acts are self-centered acts committed by people that are desperate to be noticed. The emphasis will be on the externals, not upon the heart. And typically, people that are legalists become absolutely consumed and preoccupied with trivia, things that really don't matter. Legalism resents individuality and relentlessly imposes its rules upon groups of people to herd them in certain directions. No individual thinking, no individual thought, no individuality. Here's how we all must function. That is the heart of the legalist. And of course, legalism becomes insensitive to human needs. It typically lacks compassion. It produces divisions. It produces strife. And it is always requiring more interpretation, more explanation, more defense from the experts. Paul condemned the legalism in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, when he railed against the legalists, saying, you are those who measure yourselves by yourselves and compare yourselves with yourselves. Likewise, in Colossians 2 and verse 20, Paul challenged the legalist saying, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Well, certainly, like most sins of the heart, we are all quite certain that not, that we are not guilty of legalism, right? We're all sitting here thinking, boy, yeah, that is a sin. I'm sure glad I don't struggle with that one. Yet I fear, dear friends, that the sting of the lash falls upon our backs as well as anyone else. It's very easy for us to contrive rituals and rules that are apart from Scripture. Many times they're nothing more than mere preferences but we follow them, we're obsessed with them, and we judge others by them as if it's something that has been commanded by divine fiat. We must guard ourselves against that. Against that. But certainly, the quintessential legalists that we read about in the Scriptures were the scribes and the Pharisees. And perhaps the greatest illustration of this dreadful form of idolatry is found in the absurd regulations that they imposed upon themselves and upon others in the observance of the Sabbath. Now, this is all giving you context for the text that we will look at in a few minutes. First of all, let me remind you a little bit of the four primary features of God's law. This is a little bit of introduction that I think is very important for us to make sure we understand. If we look at God's law, we see, first of all, there's what we would call a twofold summarization of the law. 
It's to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And oh, do we love ourselves. That would be a twofold summarization of the law. But then there would be a tenfold summarization of the law. It's called the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, sometimes referred to in the Old Testament as the Tablets of Stone. These, of course, were the, the, the laws that God gave Moses, the Mosaic Law on Mount Sinai. We read about, we read about it in Exodus 19 and 20. This, of course, would be sometimes called the Old Covenant. And if you kept the covenant... If you if you obeyed God with respect to these laws, he would bless you. And if you violated them, he would judge you. You may recall that out of the Ten Commandments, the first three really emphasized how important it is to love God perfectly. And then right in the middle there in the fourth commandment, you have this law regarding the Sabbath that I'll talk about in a moment. And then and then you have have uh, the rest of them referring to how we are to love our neighbor. But then beyond that, we have what would be called the manifold laws or the words of the covenant. You read that in Exodus 24 and verse 7. And here we would have the entire, for example, the entire book of Leviticus, where you go into to, to great detail, then an expansion of the law. And all of this law of God was written down and placed in a receptacle on the side of the Ark of the Covenant. The tablets of stone, of course, were inside the ark, but the manifold law was written down and placed in a receptacle next to the ark of the covenant. We read that in Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, where it says, take this book of the law and place it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. You see, the purpose of the law was to expose sin, to be a witness against you. You see, the law was the codification, if you will, of the holiness of God. It was the, the divine standard of righteousness. And any breach of the law, any violation, no matter how small it was, was in fact indicative of breaking the whole law. And the consequence was death. And so it was very oppressive. And God did this for a purpose, to drive us to grace, to drive us to the Savior. When Paul examined his life against the law of God, he says that he died. It killed him. Uh, why? Because it exposed the depths of his own sinfulness. It raised the standard of God's holiness where it ought to be. And in light of in light of his holiness, his life, my life, your life is woefully, woefully inadequate. And so in light of the law of God, we know instantly that we are guilty before God. Now, it's very important for you to know that the old covenant, the old Mosaic law, was a shadow of the heavenly things, according to Hebrews 8. And the Jews that lived under the old covenant were waiting for something better, according to Hebrews 11.40, namely the new covenant of grace in Christ Jesus. Well, so you have the, the twofold summary of the law, you have the tenfold, you have the manifold law, but then fourthly, if you want to understand the fourth feature of the law of God, you have to talk about the Sabbath. Let me talk about that for a moment, because this is going to be crucial in understanding our text. God called the Sabbath a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. Exodus 31:17. You might recall that there was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant that was circumcision it occurred one time 
uh, eight days after the birth of a male child. But there was also a sign of the Mosaic covenant, which was the Sabbath. And it was a perpetual covenant. Now, we all know what a sign does. A sign points to something. It represents something. It symbolizes something. Of course, the sign of circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant, which was the cutting away of the the foreskin of the male organ, symbolized the need of the cutting away of sin, the need for a deep cleansing, because sin is carried in the seed of the man and produces more depraved sinners. So that was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But the sign of the Mosaic covenant, which was the Sabbath, really had two special components to it. In Exodus 31, it was called the Sabbath was called, as I say, a sign between me and the sons of Israel. And the first thing that the Sabbath would do is look back to God's cessation of creation. We read about that in Genesis 2, 1, where he blessed or he sanctified, he set apart the seventh day as a memorial, as a testimony to his creative work in the preceding six days. By the way, as a footnote, there's no other reason for man to divide the calendar into weeks of seven. And yet, historically, that has been the case. Actually, ten works out much better. But God did it for a reason. That that is to help us every Saturday, frankly, to be reminded that God is creator. But the Sabbath also had another component. Not only did it look back to God's cessation of creation, but it looked forward to a return of Edenic splendor when the Lord comes again, when there will be perfect rest, when there will be perpetual rest, where there will be perfect fellowship with God. In Exodus 19 and 20, the Sabbath is tucked right in the middle of the Ten Commandments where we read, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And at that point, the seventh day was not only a reminder of God as creator, but again, as the righteous judge and savior. Now, in the Old Testament, there were many restrictions for the Sabbath. By the way, restrictions that we will find in the New Testament that Jesus deliberately and conspicuously and continually violated. Things such as you were required to stay at home. You couldn't go. You didn't go to a place of worship like we do today. Uh, There was no cooking, no working, no carrying a load. You couldn't build a fire. You couldn't buy or sell. Bottom line, your agenda was out on the Sabbath. And technically, uh, there were 11 Sabbaths. If you uh, look at the the, all of the holy convocations and and the various Sabbaths in, in sequence, you can see that in Leviticus 23, Numbers 28. And Leviticus 25 and so on. Very precise technical system that God um, created in order for man to really understand his own sinfulness and understand God's holiness. Well, what could they do on the Sabbath in the Old Testament? Well, you could sit and reflect upon your inability to keep the law. That's what it was all about. To take inventory of your life. To contemplate the Abrahamic covenant where you, you, you were promised a blessing and prosperity in the land, but it's not here yet. And God, we can't keep these commandments. God, we need mercy. We need forgiveness. We need grace. Because all we feel is condemnation. So what would they do? They would cry out to God for salvation. And God saved them, catch this, by the terms of the new covenant. 
the sacrifice of Christ, even though it had not yet happened. No one was ever saved by keeping the law. No one could ever keep the law. It was the sacrificial death of Christ that ratified the new covenant and it was applied to them retroactively. Nothing in the old covenant could save them. By the way, I also believe that uh, that the Sabbath restrictions recapitulated the perfection of the garden that they no longer enjoyed. And yet they all yearned for because in the garden, you didn't have to go any place. You could stay at home and enjoy it. In the garden, there was no need to to leave. All you could possibly want, all you could possibly need was right there. You didn't need to cook. You didn't need to work. You didn't need to build a fire. You didn't need to carry a load. You didn't need to buy. You didn't need to sell. All of the desires of Adam and Eve were perfectly met in the perfect fellowship that they enjoyed with their creator. But now, because of sin, everything has changed. Fellowship is broken. They're beginning to experience the consequences of the curse. Yet, because of God's great love and his and, 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 and his desire to reconcile man back to himself, he gives them the law to expose their sin and drive them to his mercy. Now, a quick digression from my introduction, and I hate it when I do this, and I know you hate it, too, but it's very important. And believe me, I will get back on track. So bear with me. Many today cling to various aspects of the Old Testament law. Diet restrictions, keeping the Sabbath, these types of things. The Seventh-day Adventists are notorious for this. Also, there's uh, other groups of what we would call Sabbatarians. And these people want to apply some of the terms of the Old Covenant to the first day of the week, to, to Sunday, to today. And such as, you know, you're not supposed to work, you can't mow your yard, you, you, no pleasure of any kind. And there's just a myriad of things that various people have contrived. But, dear friends, might I say to you that to in any way extricate anything from the Old Testament law, especially this very complicated system of Sabbath law with all of its restrictions to somehow extricate that all of the feasts and convocations and to whimsically import them into the new covenant is not only unbiblical, but it is an assault against grace. It diminishes the glory of the cross. Now, the Sabbath was, as you have just heard, a sign pointing to the rest we have in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 speaks of that. So why take some aspect of the sign of the Mosaic covenant and inject it into the new covenant? It makes no sense theologically. The Sabbath was the culminating feature of the law. It was designed to isolate sinners, to cause them to feel their condemnation before God. How do we feel that today? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, through his word. Jesus said in John 14, when the spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, friends, today we have two ordinances that celebrate our deliverance from sin, baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. And we no longer have anything that God has given us to point to our sinfulness. There's no more need for rest. The great Menachem, as the Jews would say, has come. The great consoler, the, 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 the great rest giver, the great comforter has come. And through the new, the new covenant, he has brought permanent and eternal rest to our souls. Again, this is the, the theme of Hebrews 3 and 4. 
The Apostle Paul spoke of this in Colossians 2 and verse 16, where he said, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Dear friends, there is not one single commandment in the New Testament to keep the Sabbath. Not one. All Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except the Fourth Commandment. It's not there. There are no Sabbath rules given anywhere in the New Testament. There is no mention of consequences for violating the Sabbath. We are never encouraged to keep the Sabbath. Nor are we ever told in any way to transport any aspect of the Sabbath over into the first day of the week. In fact, in Acts 15, in the Council of Jerusalem, you will read that they clearly nullified anything of the old covenant that was to be applied to the Gentiles and certainly to mix with the new covenant. So, dear friends, bottom line, guard yourselves from those positions that subtly diminish the glory of the cross and the grace that it affords. Now, back to our text. The Sabbath's restrictions... In the Old Testament were one thing, but what the scribes and the Pharisees came up with, <laughs> oh my, it was, it was altogether something else. For example, when they read the Old Testament and God says that you're not supposed to work or carry a burden, they decided they'd reinterpret that a bit and they had things like, well, this means that if you have an artificial leg, you can't carry that. Uh, you, you can't even carry a crutch. You cannot, mothers, lift a child. Well, that would violate the Sabbath because then you'd be carrying a burden. It's okay to lift food as long as it was equal to or less than a fig. You could drink milk, but only enough for one swallow at a time. You could lift water, but only enough to moisten the eye. You could lift ink, but only enough to write two letters of the alphabet. Baths could not be taken on the Sabbath, lest the water would spill upon the floor and wash it, God forbid. Because you can't wash on the Sabbath. If you had false teeth, you had to take them out. By the way, it's interesting that they had some form of false teeth back then. I don't know what they looked like, but they had them. Well, you couldn't have the false teeth because they exceeded the weight limit of carrying burdens. I mean, this is the type of absurdity that they had in those days. The Talmud, which was the compilation of Jewish traditions, has 24 chapters listing laws concerning the Sabbath. One law, for example, and I could I could bore you with many. Maybe it's not that boring. I find it rather humorous myself. But one law was that you could uh, you can only go 3,000 feet away from your house, otherwise you would violate the Sabbath. But if you placed food 3,000 feet away from your Sabbath, I mean from your home, then you could go to that point and then that would be the new starting place for your home and you could go 3,000 feet beyond that. See, they had all kinds of, and legalists will always do this. They'll come up with rules, but they'll find themselves in a bind, so they come up with other rules to somehow find a loophole so that they can exist. It's insane. And by the way, you could also take a rope 
and extend it across the street or an alleyway to some other place. And that would be considered an extension of your house. So then you could go 3000 feet beyond that. Now, dear friends, legalism. Now, please hear this. Legalism offers only the illusion of spirituality. There's no substance to it. It's sizzle and no steak. So since it never fills the void, new regulations must constantly be introduced to somehow appease the conscience. So now Jesus comes along, the Lord of the Sabbath, the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises, Hebrews 8, 6. The one who came not to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill it, Matthew 5, 17. The very one to whom the Sabbath pointed was now in their midst. And instead of rejoicing, they resent him. Blinded by their hypocrisy, which is fueled by legalism, the ruthless enemy of grace. Now, knowing this, Jesus deliberately violates the Sabbath, along with his disciples in various passages of Scripture in the New Testament. And here in this text, we see that he exposes the sins of the legalists. And we're going to see three things very simply, the way I would outline this, three things that the Lord exposes with the legalist. Number one, they love regulations more than people. Secondly, they love tradition more than God. And thirdly, they love darkness rather than light. Notice in verses one and two, at that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. Now, friends. Keep in mind, legalism requires constant policing. You have to have Barney fights in order for a legalistic system to be maintained. Thus, you're going to have what I sometimes call the preference police, religious whistleblowers. Fault finders and the system is oppressive because there's always people watching. You know, there's this relentless obsession with the rules and enforcing the rules. And so that's what you have here. The Pharisees now are dogging Jesus and the disciples. They're watching. We're going to find something that he does. Oh, look, 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 look what they're doing on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus and the disciples were not reaping on the Sabbath, which was forbidden by the Mosaic law. They were only sustaining themselves because they were hungry, which was okay to do, according to Deuteronomy 33. But the rabbis now had reinterpreted the law, had to make it much stricter because, again, legalism only gives you the illusion of spirituality. And since you still don't feel very spiritual, you've got to come up with more rules. And maybe eventually I'm going to get to a point where I can keep enough rules that I'm going to feel like something real is in my heart. So what did they do? They said that rubbing grain together in the hands is threshing and you can't thresh and blowing the chaff away is winnowing. You can't winnow. Gotcha. So Jesus exposes the sin of legalism, their externalism. And the first thing that I would draw your attention to is that they love regulations more than people. Notice how the Lord refutes this beginning in verse three. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to eat. 
nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. In other words, the Lord uses with sarcasm the story of David. You will remember he was fleeing from Saul's insanity. Saul was mad with jealousy. So David was fleeing from his vengeance along with his companions, and yet they were hungry. So they come to, to the tabernacle that was there at Nob, and they, they, they go in, and they, they need something to eat. And Elimelech, the, the priest, they, they, he said, I don't have any food, but, but there is the, the bread of the presence, which were 12 loaves of bread that were, that were baked every week. And he gave them that food. Now, God was not offended with that. Had he been offended, he would have judged David and he would have judged the men. He would have judged Ahimelech, the priest. You see, friends, God's love, his compassion for those in need utterly eclipsed some need to obey ceremonial regulation. This is what Jesus is using here as an illustration to refute the Pharisees. God has always made allowances to his laws under extenuating circumstances. By the way, it's a good thing he does or we would all be dead. That's what mercy is all about. He is merciful and he is long suffering. So Jesus is basically saying with this example, how can you condemn us? Ah, but they love regulations more than God. And Jesus know this, knows this and he gives them another example in verse five. Verse five, he says, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? The point here is Jesus is exposing the inconsistency of their legalism. These people certainly knew that the priests work very hard on the Sabbath. They have to light fires for the altar. They, they have to to eviscerate or, or, or gut the animals. They have to lift the carcasses onto the onto the onto the altar. And the point is, would you accuse them of violating the Sabbath? By the way, I probably work harder on Sunday than any other day of the week. Am I in sin? But he goes on in verse six, but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Now, folks, here's where Jesus is going for the juggler. I love it. Now, he's already embarrassed them with impeccable logic and precise theology. But now he comes along and claims that he is greater than the temple. I mean, this is this is throwing salt into the legalistic wounds here. There is nothing greater than the temple to the Jew. Jesus was claiming that he was greater than the temple. And now they're insane with anger. By the way, you'll find that it doesn't take much to ignite the anger of a legalist. They are the quintessential control freaks of the universe. Greater than the temple? Beloved, here we bow before the Almighty who speaks with authority. And think of this, the, the, the grandeur and the glory of the temple was fabulous beyond words, Solomon's temple. But it pales in comparison with the creator of the heavens and the earth. The Lord himself in Isaiah 66, verse 1 says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And there is a place that I may, where, and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being. You see, friends, the Shekinah presence of the living God hovered between the wings of the cherubim in Solomon's temple. But you will recall because of sin, the glory gradually departed and went up over the eastern gate across the Cadron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. By the way, the exact same pathway in which he will return. 
But the light of his glory did not grace the second temple, Herod's temple. And yet now the Pharisees stood in the very presence of the light of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, God, very God, as Paul said, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The one who is unapproachable now stands in the presence of inconceivable hypocrisy. Only mercy prevents them from being instantly incinerated. But the sin of legalism, the sin of hypocrisy, the sin of phony religion inspired by Satan that frustrates grace, blinds sinners to the truth. So notice what Jesus says, beginning in verse 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would have not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he's saying, you hypocrites, you love your sacrifices, your rituals, your regulations of the mosaic system combined with with your ridiculous additions. You love this more than people. I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. By the way, here he quotes from the prophet Hosea in Hosea chapter six in the first part of verse six. He's in effect saying, your hearts are so hardened by your self-exalting legalism that you have no love, you have no compassion for people. All you love is yourself as you endeavor to somehow live out these external rules to impress other people. And in your sick and deceived mind, hoping that you will obligate God to have mercy upon you. And again, in effect, what Jesus was saying, the Sabbath looked back to God's cessation of creation where I blessed the Sabbath. I sanctified it. I set it apart that seventh day as a memorial, as a testimony to my creative work in the six preceding days. And it also looked forward to a return to Edenic splendor where there will be perfect rest, perfect fellowship with God. Not only a reminder of God as creator, but also as the righteous judge and savior. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You fools, don't you see it? I am greater than the temple. I am greater than the Sabbath. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the Lord of the heaven and of the earth. The one to be worshipped in the temple. The one to whom the Sabbath pointed. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. But they were so blinded by their self-exalting, the self-exalting opiate, if you will, of legalism. They not only loved the regulations more than people, but secondly, they loved tradition more than God. This leads us to the event that occurs in the synagogue. And here's where the Lord proves this. Notice in verse 9, and departing from there, he went into their synagogue. My goodness, you talk about going into the lion's lair. I mean, he goes right to the synagogue. And behold, there was a man with a withered hand and they questioned him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And don't you know, they had a smirk on their face. We've got you now. We've got you now. And the rest of the verse says in order that they might accuse him. That was their motivation. Notice, by the way, they knew his claims to deity. They even knew he could heal. They had seen his supernatural powers. I mean, it was well known throughout the whole land. 
irrefutable. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, see, they knew that he could heal. But dear friends, herein is another example of the incredible self-deception that coexists with legalism. You see, every false religious system at its core has a theology of human works to earn salvation. Rituals, ceremonies, traditions, missionary enterprises, pilgrimages, and on and on it goes. And as a result of that, people have an illusion of spirituality. They develop a religious pride and a religious fervor that replaces a genuine love for God. Now, they don't recognize this. They don't recognize this sin. Why? Because they have no comprehension of his mercy, no comprehension of his grace, of his love. They have no Holy Spirit resident within them. And like the Pharisees, many people may recognize the supernatural transforming power of Jesus Christ, even in our day, and the power of the gospel because they can see it all around them. But because they love their self-exalting, self-righteous, self-absorbing system of religion, whatever it may be, more than God, they refuse to humble themselves before Christ. They like to be in control, not God. One great example of that in our world today is the religion of Islam. And I only use this religion, this false religion, as an example. There are many others that we could speak of, but this one is so prevalent today because of our war. I don't like to say against terrorists because it is not so much against terrorists. It's against Islam. Now, I know that not all people believe that that are Islamic believe in some of the things the terrorists are doing. But don't kid yourselves, dear friends. You look at history and you will see that this is the modus operandi of Islam. Islam, by the way, means submission. It means surrender to Allah. And if you see people the way that they have to pray all the time and all the stuff they have to do, you will see that there is a a slave type of a mentality that they have with Allah. And as you look at that religion of legalism, you will see that it is a system of endless religious activities. And these people are convinced that they are the only true religion. And Islamic ideology, by the way, is is really based upon an intense hatred of the non-Muslim world. That's why they are always having jihad. By the way, just a few facts. One point four million people in the world today are Muslims. Two hundred and eighty million Americans, five and a half million Israelis. And they are surrounded. The five and a half million Israelis are surrounded by three hundred and fifty million Arab Muslims. Over the last 50 years, the world population of Christians has increased by 47%. The world population of Buddhists has increased by 63%. The world population of Muslims has increased by 235%. They have numerous wives, numerous children. Part of their this is all part of their plan for world domination. And historically, as we look at Islam, and I'm not going to get into the details of it. I've done that before, and I'd be glad to give you more information on it. But it is a satanic religion spawned in ancient Mesopotamia. It is a hybrid of the ancient Baal worship of the Canaanites. It can be traced back to the Tower of Babel and ancient Babylon, ancient Babylon. 
Historically, these people have converted others by the sword. They have been a barbaric people. We see that today. They think nothing of cutting off heads, of killing innocent children, relentless atrocities committed even against their own people, staggering oppression of women and of children. You look at their culture and it's constantly in turmoil, constantly in poverty. Even the hostilities that they have against themselves is legendary. And wherever they border any other people, there are wars. It is estimated today that between 90 and 95 percent of all the conflicts on the planet today involve Muslims fighting non-Muslims or fighting each other. They are committed to world domination. They're blinded by pride, blinded by hate. They're in bondage to their sin and they have an inconceivable hatred of Christ. Dear friends, they need our love, but they also need the truth. Don't shy away from it. They need our love because they need the Savior. They're blinded by their own religious system. Satan doesn't care what you believe as long as it's a lie. Well, Islam is an example of how people love traditions more than God. They have no understanding of who he is. By the way, in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, there are very clear prophecies that describe Islam's utter annihilation at the hand of Jehovah God, the God of the Bible that will occur during the the great tribulation. Now, back to the text, Jesus seeing the Pharisees who are again now in love with their traditions more than God. He says to them in verse 11, what man shall be among you who shall have one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value then? I'm sorry, of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then it is it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. By the way, Mark's gospel gives us a little more understanding of this text. There you will read that, in essence, Jesus has silenced them with his with his logic, he has trapped them and exposed their their heartless insensitivity to those who were in need and their violent commitment to their own damning legalism. And basically, you know, he's saying, you mean to tell me you're going to love an animal more than a fellow man in need? But. And. In verse 13 we go on to read that Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand and he stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. You see, Jesus was so incensed with their hypocrisy, so filled with indignation that according to Mark's gospel in Mark three and verse five, we read more of his self-righteous indignation here. He says, um, he says, and after looking around at them with anger, this is Jesus now. Grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to them, stretch out your hand. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. You see, friends, the Lord of the Sabbath would not be intimidated. With great compassion, he healed on the Sabbath. Now, can you imagine the scene? A miraculous display of supernatural power. Wouldn't you think at this point when they saw this withered hand suddenly appear to be like the other one? They would repent. Oh, no, not the legalist. Because, you see, the legalist also loves darkness rather than light. In verse 14, notice what it says. 
But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. In fact, in Mark's gospel, in verse six of chapter three, it says, and the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. By the way, the grammar of the phrase counsel together, it could be translated plotted, literally means to discuss how to implement a decision that has been previously made. They already had their minds made up. They already knew what they were going to do. They were just trying to trap the Lord. And you see, their hearts already were hardened in unbelief. They were already darkened by the sin of self-exaltation spawned and maintained by legalism. And they even go out to the Herodians. Now, you've got to keep in mind here, friends, the Herodians were bitter enemies of the Pharisees. You see, they were a political sect that were supportive of Rome. <laughs> but their mutual hatred of Jesus galvanized them together in their crusade to kill him. My, I've seen that many times before, where bitter, bitter enemies suddenly become comrades in order to defeat a common foe. And so here we... See men who love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil, as John 3:19 tells us. Jesus, the light of the world, had flooded every aspect of their life with his glory, both Jew and Gentile. But because they loved darkness much more than the light, they would not allow the light of the truth to penetrate their hearts. By the way, God's chosen people... The Jews not only rejected their Messiah, but plotted to kill him. And this really became a pivotal, a pivotal time in the ministry of Jesus when he came into his own and his own received him not. This scenario in Jesus Galilean ministry was one that caused a real shift now as we begin, as we from here on out, as we study what happened. You see, in spite of the undeniable proof that Jesus offered in defense of his claim that he was their Messiah, they still rejected him. And so Jesus discerns the hardness of their hearts. By the way, the, the apostles didn't see it. And there are two great moments of rejection which bring to a close Jesus' private, I'm, I should say public ministry, and ushers in his private ministry. And one of these one of these times, one of these great moments is right here. This is the official rejection, which is the unpardonable sin. We'll discuss that next week. And the second is the popular rejection, which we read about in John 6 in the feeding of the 5,000. But dear friends, now please catch this as we begin to wrap this up this morning. Because of this rejection, Jesus judicially seals them in their unbelief. Now, not every Jew, but most Jews have been blinded by God because of their unbelief. Now, God has always preserved a remnant for himself, and he always will. But Paul describes this, for example, in Romans 11:25, where he speaks of a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. By the way, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Grammatically, what that is saying is that there is a specific predetermined time in history when God in his sovereignty has saved all of the ordained number of Gentiles that are to be saved in the church age. That's the age we're living in now. And when the last Gentile is saved, 
that will be the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And at that moment in history, we don't know when it'll be. Might be this afternoon, might be right now. We don't know when it will be. But that will signal the beginning of those events that we read about in Bible prophecy that will lead to the salvation of Israel. You will have the great rapture of the church, the great tribulation. You will have that time where the nation of Israel uh, will survive God's judgment upon the wicked. But before all Israel can be saved, as Paul tells us in Romans 11:26, Christ will separate out from the nation, from the world, those that reject him. And then we can read, and if we were to take time, we're really out of time, so I'll not go there now. But you can go to Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 through 38, and you will read of the glorious salvation that will occur with God's covenant people. Beloved, indeed, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the sovereign ruler of history. And he, even as he has cut off unbelieving Israel from the tree of salvation for a temporary period of time through this partial hardening, likewise, the salvation of Israel will also someday occur and he will graft them back into that tree from which they have been cut off. And even as the fullness of the Gentiles will trigger the salvation of Israel, likewise, the salvation of Israel will trigger the millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. May I challenge each of you this morning to guard your hearts against legalism and pray for those who are caught up in the bondage of it, because all forms of false religion are in one way or another caught up in something that we've got to do to obligate God to save us. Don't be guilty of the sins of the Pharisees who loved regulations more than people, who loved traditions more than God, and who loved darkness rather than light. But may we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, so that we can worship Him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank You that indeed You have set into motion a glorious plan of redemption. And as we think through some of these wonderful concepts, even flowing out of the Old Testament, we see Your sovereign hand and we once again fall before Your face and admit that salvation is solely of grace. Lord, how we pray for our own hearts that at times we can all be caught up in ridiculous obsessions of preferences and trivia that have nothing to do with Scripture. Lord, guard us against that. But also I pray that you will use us as instruments of righteousness in the lives that are, of those that are caught up in the bondage of some false religious system where they have somehow convinced themselves through external activities that indeed they have been reconciled to a holy and a righteous God. Lord, bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ, for He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank You, Lord, for meeting with us this day. We praise You and we love You. In Jesus' name, Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615. 615-
746-0113.